Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Sunridge. You guys are so responsive. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Yeah. <laughs> or troublesome, as some may be. But uh, I love troublemakers. Happened to have been one myself at one time. No longer. That's in my past since Jesus saved me and made me the godly example that I am today. So uh, thank you for joining us, whether you're here uh, on our campus or watching us online. Uh, My name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And as Scott just read, we're going to be looking at Luke's gospel in chapter 10. So I I would invite you to open up your Bible to that, or if you use a digital version of that, turn it on. Or you can even follow along in our app, uh, which gives you both the scripture that we're looking at today, and also um, uh, the note sheet that you can fill in as we go. And you know, like this section that we're looking at today, it, this, the hard part isn't understanding it. I mean, this is not a difficult or deeply theological passage, uh, like if we were reading something that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans or something like that. And especially if we're looking at it through our 20th century um, 21st century, it's like, you know, when we are, um, where we are, who we are. Um, you know, if we look at it through our modern lens, it seems like a pretty straightforward story. I mean, you have two siblings who are in a spat over who's doing the most work and who's being a slacker. And one tattles on the other. And of course, every parent here has experienced this in some way. Uh, We're studying through Luke's gospel, as we've said, and as we've noted a few times uh, of the sections that we look at, um, this is unique. This story is unique to Luke's gospel. It's the only gospel that has uh, this scene in it. So with that idea, like how many of you are familiar with this story, the Mary and Martha story? See, so what's cool about that or interesting to me is that it's only in one gospel, and yet by far the majority of you are familiar with this because it's memorable for some reason. And uh, we're going to explore that today uh, just with one of our questions, like why why did Luke include this? Like what's so important about this story? So as we say often here, uh, in, in understanding the Bible, context is not just part of what we do. It's, it's everything in understanding what we're reading because the Bible was not written to you or to me, but it was written for us. In fact, who was Luke written to in the beginning that we learned? Who was it? Theophilus, right? It was written to a, a specific person. And uh, often, if we don't realize the Bible isn't written to us and we don't look at context, then um, we're almost always going to end up with the wrong conclusion. So context is going to be really important here because this is the first century century, and it's important 
um, and us understanding why Luke would include this story. As Jesus is teaching, and he's uh, serving, and he's gathering his disciples, and he's healing people, and as we've noted, he's making his way from the northern part of uh, Palestine down to Jerusalem, his entourage is growing. In fact, last week, in the reading we did, we saw that he sent out 72. At first, remember, he sent 12 people out in groups, six, uh, two by two, and then uh, he, now he sends out 72. So, like, it's getting really big. There's a lot of people uh, that are involved in this part of Jesus' ministry. Typically, don't we just think of the 12? We think of 12, but it's a really large group. And in Luke 6, we saw that the 12 are actually chosen from a very large number of uh, followers. And in Luke 8, Luke notes that there were many women with Jesus. So this is a large crowd made of men and women. And so if you just picture that, you got a really big logistics problem. Like all these people traveling together, how, how do you feed them? How do you lodge them? It reminds me a lot of like uh, all the fire camps that I was a part of. And it's like it, the fire service is so remarkable. And that like within hours, you have a place to eat and showers and s- sleeping and, and, you know, trailers to do printing and everything. It's, the fire service is just remarkable in setting something up like that. And here you just have like a first century version of it. But that's going to really contribute to how we look at what's happening here. Where are they? And who is this Mary and Martha? In Luke 10, verse 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to her. Now, in John's gospel, he mentions a Mary and Martha, along with a Lazarus, and notes that it's in Bethany. But we don't know for sure if this is the same Mary and Martha, because Luke here locates it in a village, not Bethany, and Bethany is quite away from where they would be traveling. So this could be an entirely different Mary and Martha. Are they the same? I have no idea. But it's kind of fun to try to figure that stuff out. So I just thought I'd note that for you. That was a freebie. But what Luke does make clear is that they're stopping in this home for accommodations and um, for teaching. And this home belongs to Martha. It's her home. And, which right away can, can, you know, contributes to how we understand Martha and what she's doing here. As the host, the homeowner, she's going to feel the most responsibility for what's happening in her home. And if this is the Mary Martha of, John's, of John 11... When Lazarus, their brother, died, Martha is the one that goes out to meet Jesus first, which indicates that she's the oldest sister. And so culturally, those two things together, homeowner and older sister, gives her a greater sense of responsibility for what's happening here. And it also gives her a sense of entitlement to boss her sister around. Either way, she's opened her home to a lot of people. And hospitality is really valued in the first century. So there's a lot on her plate, you can just imagine. And evidently, there's a couple things going on in this large gathering in her house. 
there's feeding, there's logistics, maybe accommodations for some people, and there's a Bible study. And Mary, her sister, is at the Bible study. She's in that group. And they're probably in another room of the house, a separate room, or maybe even out in the courtyard, and Jesus is teaching. And how Luke describes what Mary is doing is huge culturally. He says, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening. That phrase is not just a literal phrase of where she was and location, but it's also metaphorical. Um, But we're going to touch on that at the end of the message. But then, as they're both, these sisters, like, focused on two different things, Luke kind of accentuates that, the differences that are going on here. Verse 40, it starts with, but. Mary's here in Bible study with Jesus, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Luke says that um, Martha is distracted by all these preparations that need to be done. There's a lot to do, right? But isn't that kind of a strange description of someone who is taking care of things? There's a lot that needs to be done, and she's taking care of them, and it's described as being distracted. And in that state, Martha comes from probably another place in the house, and she interrupts Jesus while he's teaching. And she says, in front of everybody, hey, there's a lot that needs to be done. I'm doing all the work. Mary there has left me with this task alone. Don't you even care about this? Tell her to help me. Boom. Probably end of Bible study, right? Every indication is this happens right in front of everybody. I picture her being tearful and super frustrated. Um, and it seems like that the only person she's focusing on is her sister. Nobody else in the room. Keep in mind that there's a whole bunch of people sitting in the room listening to Jesus, but her complaint is only about Mary. Like, it's, it's her responsibility. Now, many of you have probably heard in executive training or supervisory training, you know, uh, public action, private response. Um, Not in this case, it seems, because Jesus responds publicly. He says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So the way Jesus does this in front of everybody really shows compassion. He's calming her down by using her name twice, Martha, Martha. He's saying, "You're, you're upset. And uh, you have a lot going on, and I get it. But in spite of that, only a, f- only a few things, and then he self-corrects, indeed, only one is really important right now. And Mary's right where she's supposed to be. And I'm not going to intervene. Now, knowing how siblings can interact, like, what do you picture their faces being like? How did Mary look in that moment? 
I don't know. I'm imagining. What does Martha's face look like? So that's kind of the ending of the story. That is the ending of the story. So how do you guys think it ends? Like, let's use our imaginations, okay? So I'm going to give you four options. We'll put them up on the screen. How does the story end? Uh, Mary gets up to help Martha. Uh, Martha sees the light and decides to, you know, like, oh, yeah. So she sits down in Bible study. Bible study's just over. Everyone goes on. Or the men in the room get up to help. Like, why don't you, like, look at someone that you don't know right now and tell them, like, which one you would pick or, like, another. Go ahead. Do that right now. Just take a couple seconds. Talk to somebody. Talk to that person next to you. You don't know. No arguing. No arguing. Don't, don't send anybody packing from the church because of your insistence, okay? So while you're talking to them, ask them their name and then invite them to lunch too. That's like a thing we do here. So, so the truth is we really don't know, right? Uh, you know, and one of the things that you, you notice, like when you read the Bible, the, the, the authors of the Bible, the writers, they're, they're so economical. Like they're like just giving like basic things. And then sometimes they give you like this really like in-depth detail. So those always stand out. But we do learn something about people. I mean, can you insert yourself into just being an observer or one of the people into this scenario? I can. And what you see is that people um, in the Bible, they're just people, just like us. They live in a different time, a different culture, a different situation. There's probably, there's definitely different expectations, but they're just people. And I think one of the things that like jumps off the page from this story is the realization that people are just naturally poor at conflict. We're poor at giving it, we're poor at taking it, um, and it doesn't matter the scenario. It could be from a friend, in our marriage, in our workplace, and there are just tons of books and seminars on, like, you know, how to deal with conflict, how to, how to take conflict, and in fact, I'm writing ahead, you know, there's, we're going to do a series called Family Life. When we close out Luke, I won't tell you what we're going to do right after that, but we're just going to do like a three-part series. And I'm trying to debate on whether like one of them should be on conflict or um, because, because I've heard in some of your marriages, you guys have conflict. But, um, you know, or like how do you integrate faith into your marriage? So you can pray for me on that. I have a leaning, but anyway, it, we're just poor at it. I mean, how far do you have to read in your Bible before you start to see people having conflict? So um, in my Bible, page three, uh, the uh, serpent intervenes and stirs up trouble between Adam and Eve, between Adam and Eve and God. And uh, when they realize it, they hide from God. And then, of course, Adam blames Eve, the woman you gave me, God. That's how they're dealing with conflict from the very beginning. And then on page four, Cain kills his brother. So is there a theme in the Bible? If we just don't process our differences well. And that's a, that's a situation in the world. It isn't just in your marriage. It isn't just between you and you know, your neighbor. It's like, it's the state of the world. 
It's human beings. Can you relate? So maybe you have a Mary in your life. Uh, maybe it's not a Mary. Maybe they have a different name. But it's someone with which you have differences. It could be your spouse, your kids, a co-worker, someone at Sunridge. Someone from another church in town. And unbelievable as it may sound, it may be your pastor. One of the other pastors I'm talking about. So I don't know about you, but can you ever think of a time when you just got yourself all spun up um, at someone over something that you're doing that they're not? Or an expectation that you had of them that you never told them about, but they should just know about it? Or have you ever been upset with someone that this person isn't on the same page as this issue or this event as you? Or you're even troubled just, maybe they're on the same page, but they're not as passionate about it as you are. In any of those scenarios, do you also assume that Jesus is on your side about it? And that he should be telling them how to get it together and agree with you on that matter? These are just all hypothetical, I'm just saying. And you know, the sentence structure here in the original language shows that Martha entirely thinks that Jesus is on her side on this. Of course he is. I mean, but isn't that how we think? Like we're in conflict with someone. It's like, of course, I'm on God's side, right? I mean, when have you ever gone into a conflict and said, you know, I know Jesus wouldn't agree with this, but I'm standing on it. Like we don't, Christians, we don't normally do that. And who doesn't want Jesus to help them with all these misinformed or under-informed under people that are in their lives, our lives, to see the light as we do. I mean, don't bother me with the facts, people. Um, what matters here is that God and I are on the same team, which means you're on the other team. And this is one thing about human beings that just shows me that original sin is real. Like, we don't have to teach our children how to mess up conflict, right? They just do it. We're all born natural at this. And I love what James says in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, uh, what causes fights and quarrels among you? He goes on to say, it's all those dumb people in your life. No, he says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And as an example here, we have two people who both are trying to follow Jesus, Mary and Martha. I mean, Martha's welcomed Jesus and his disciples into her home to serve him. And uh, she is serving Jesus in the place that God, she feels, has called her to be. And so is Mary. And yet Martha's not having any fun at all. You know, maybe she's right. Maybe Mary should be helping her. But even the way she's dealing with it, it's like just revealing that that's not going to work, right? So imagine me and Cindy in this hypothetical situation. We're driving down the road, and I'm telling her some story or whatever. 
And then she asked me a question in the middle of the story that seems less like a question and more like an accusation, like that I should have done something differently or something happened. And she's, she asked me this question. And like, to be honest, I'm kind of offended about even the question. And uh, so my strategy then is to ask her a question. Um, and so hilarity ensues. And uh, she's offended now. I'm offended, she's offended. And then I just say, well, all I did was ask you a question. And that's exactly what she's saying to me. And then we're just saying, well, I'll ask you the question. Why are you so offended? That's not a real scenario. I'm just making it up for the purposes of illustration. But we both love Jesus. We both love each other. We've been married for 43 years, and we're not going anywhere. As far as I know, she's staying with me. Um, but we're both offended. And so now we're not even talking about the issue. We're talking about who asked what and how, and it's like just totally off in the weeds. But the key here is that you know God is on my side in this conversation. Oh yeah, I can relate to Martha. So it seems like um, if we could all just remember this first point, it's not, I know it's not heavy theology, but if we could just remember that all of us who are our human beings, are naturally poor at conflict. Just that recognition alone could help us. Because it would humble us. And um, we could remember in this thing that's happening, it could be me, it could be the other person, it could be both of us, but just to realize that whatever's happening, we're probably not doing it perfectly. And if a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how I had heard a po on a podcast a pastor say that, you know, conflict and differences are really good and they make us better as long as the fruit of the Spirit is present. And when the fruit of the Spirit isn't present, then the conflict is just going to divide us. And if we could just remember that, if we could just remember that the quarrels and fights that come in our lives come from the desires that battle within us, we're bad at conflict, and yet, in that place, that is the one place, it's in a very important place where we need God to intervene. Which brings us to the main point I think we see in this interaction and why I think Lot, why Luke included it here. What do we learn about following Jesus here? You know, there are a lot of different approaches to this passage. I mentioned them in my email. I know. Many of you are like, wait, Thursday, just to see that email come. But, um, you know, I've heard this passage taught so many different ways. You know, I've heard it, it's like about firstborn and secondborn issues, you know, brother, bossy older sister, bossy older brother. I've heard it taught like about personality types, that Martha's more like a worker bee. She's a task-oriented person, and Mary's more contemplative and studious. I've heard it taught like as an example of spiritual gifting, but this story, uh, and, and virtually all of the accounts that are surrounding it in this section, are all about discipleship. It's all about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. It comes sandwiched in the middle of 
If you read this section, it comes sandwiched in the middle of these scenarios or stories. The Good Samaritan, which um, is a story about how we view broken people, whether we see them or not, and what we do when we do see them. Uh, There's a story about the persistent neighbor, which is all about how we relate back to God, what we see happening in the world, and we're insistent on God's justice intervening. And it's in the middle of the story of how um, Jesus says a, a house that's divided will fall, and how those who are following Jesus have to be constantly aware of our capacity in our inability to do conflict to divide his church and divide people from one another. We said for a long time now that uh, following Jesus involves three basic things. To be with Jesus, to be like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And this moment in the life of Mary and Martha and what Jesus says or responds to it um, teaches us a lot about being a follower of Jesus today. Luke says that Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And as we've noted, I can understand that, right? I'm sure you can. There's a lot to be done. And if you're the kind of person that sees that things need to get done, you're doing them. You can't help but see it. So Martha's not distracted in the sense that she isn't focused, right? She's not sitting in a meeting, daydreaming. Um, She's not scrolling through her social media. She's not checking her emails or the surf report. She's not looking out the window to see what everybody's doing or the birds are doing. And she's not being unspiritual. She's totally invested. She's serving wholeheartedly. Martha is distracted by important things. I mean, I assume that after Bible study, they would all like to eat something. So what she's doing is important. And I think for most of us here, I know that we're all juggling a lot in life. And so we know about distractions, right? We know how many things are coming at us daily, moment by moment. And we know how easy it is for those things to distract us from the most important things. But I want to drill down a little deeper here than just like, don't get distracted by these things. You know, focus on Jesus all the time. That's part, part of it. But let's, let's get a little deeper. And I want you to see what, what I believe are Martha's biggest distractions. The distraction is inside her. It's in her spirit, and it's how she's responding to her current situation. In verse 41, the Lord answered, You're worried and upset about many things. She's worried and upset. And that's what's distracting her. She's worried that things aren't getting done and there will be consequences. Things aren't going according to plan. She's anxious about that. And that makes her afraid. She's upset. I mean, what's the next emotion after you get, uh, you get upset? 
Like you're anxious about stuff. What happens? You sure you're worried, you're anxious, afraid, but then you're in a tiz. If, if we weren't Christians, we would say we just got mad. But we're Christians, so we don't get mad like that. And if you're Martha, there's all this stuff that should be happening that isn't. And there's all this stuff that shouldn't be happening that is, which is what her sister is doing right now. So the world is not as it should be for Martha. And let's be honest here. Jesus isn't even doing what she wants him to do. And she's mad about that too. The real distraction for Martha here is not all the stuff that, gets, that needs to be done in her mind. It is the catalyst for something deeper in her. The most distracting thing about Martha is her state of mind. She's anxious and angry. So again, follow the progression of how this works. You have a lot to be concerned about that makes you anxious about all of it. And of course, all of your fears about what could happen, what is happening, create anger or outrage. This has Martha distracted. And it's a discipleship moment for her with Jesus, and I think there's something for us to learn. I read an article uh, in October of last year uh, in The Atlantic by a guy named Peter Weiner, and it was titled, The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. And I'm going to put some of it up on the screen here. Weiner says that fear has played a central role in the explosion of conflict within American evangelical churches. Dwelling on fear and outrage is spiritually deforming, Sherry Harder, president of the Trinity Forum, told, told him. Just stop there. I want you to think about that statement. That dwelling on fear and outrage is spiritually deforming. She goes on, both biblical wisdom and a large body of research holds that fear and grace or fear and gratitude are incompatible. And she quoted from one of the New Testament epistles, perfect love drives out fear. Then Wainer continues, there are moments, of course, when fear is an appropriate and necessary response. But I want you to like, let, this, let this sink in. But there are risks when it becomes a constant presence. Fear and anger should presumably function as alarm systems. And an alarm is not, to, not supposed to stay perpetually on. It is not the onset of fear or anger that is the most dangerous, Harder says, but stoking it, cultivating it, and dwelling within it that, dis that distorts and deforms. And everybody said, oh, okay, three of us said that. Fear and outrage are distracting Christians today from Jesus. And that, that distraction is creating a deformity in the body of Christ. And in some cases, it's causing Christians and churches to drift further and further from Jesus and allow our fear and our anger 
to be the focus. A Jesus follower cannot allow themselves to be distracted by fear and outrage. The fear and outrage of our day is taking over. It has. It is distorting Christianity. And it's distorting the truth. Now let's be honest. There are lots of opportunities for things to be fearful about and to be angry about. I love, it's like Jesus said to Martha, there are many things, many things, too numerous to even list right now, Martha. And do we have a list today? Are there many things that we're anxious about, that we're angry about? And I don't know about you, but it just seems like one issue comes up and then it, it kind of like has its life. It gets settled. And then there, there's another thing right behind it, just ready to get at me all upset and all outraged and all anxious. They're like the issues. They're like zombies. You kill one and then another zombie just shows up right away. It's like you can never stop it. They just keep coming in an eternal kind of uh, drip. And when that becomes our focus, Harder says that um, it's deforming to us. And in contrast to that, Jesus said that Mary chose the better thing. It wasn't that there aren't things to be anxious and, and fearful and angry about in this moment, but Mary had chosen the better thing. And you know that had to sting a little to Martha. Because Jesus is saying, Martha, you got this wrong. And your sister got it right. Jesus, in that context, is saying to Martha that anything that steals from being with Jesus, being like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did is a distraction. So listen to me, Christian. You're motivated in your business, your career, even your ministry. Stay focused on Jesus. You're a mom and dad. And um, you're focused on your kids' academics, their sports life having all the stuff that you didn't have when you were growing up because you can give it to them. Stay focused on Jesus. If you're a student, um, your academic career right now is super important. You're making choices that are going to affect the rest of your life. You're also under a lot of pressure culturally to accept Things that, you know, are challenging to you as a Christian. You feel a lot of pressure. And you don't want to be the goofball at your school. But you have to stay focused on Jesus. And for all of us, we can't allow the things that we're afraid of, or that we are angry about, to distort who Jesus is. So, choose what is better 
every day, every moment, if need be. You know, this example that Jesus raises to prominence is someone who is quietly sitting at the feet of Jesus in the midst of all this stuff that's going around in the posture of a disciple. And it's a woman. It's Mary. And this is where context plays such a huge factor. If you read this story from 20th, from our modern day, our context here in the Temecula Valley in 2022, it's no big deal. It's a Bible study and someone forgot to bring dessert. But um, if you just read it that way, then you're going to miss so much. Because in the first century, rabbis were taught to ignore women. And they even learned in a different room. In fact, I, like a couple of years ago, our staff went to be in solidarity after one of the tragic uh, um, shootings in a mosque in another country. We went to just stand in support of um, the mosque in town here and just to let them know. And they invited us in. But because we're outsiders, we had to sit in a different room with the women. Which, I, I mean, I'm not beefing about that at all. I'm just saying, like, the, I, I, could, I saw this, like it's still happening in a way. The one thing I did love is that they took off their shoes before they came in, and I think that that would go a long way to make our carpet last here longer. But what you should see is that Mary, she is in the instructional session with Jesus. And likely, there are other women there as well. So, and then the way Luke describes it, this is huge. Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet. That's not just her GPS location. This is a phrase that is used to describe a disciple. Paul talked about how he sat at the feet of Gamaliel in Acts 22.3. And so Mary is right there in the mix of those who are being trained and sent out. And this is radical. In the first century, the idea that women who are deemed worthy of receiving instruction at this level, this woman, Mary, is portrayed in this light, that she is sitting at the master's feet. It's huge. In this passage, Mary is a full disciple. She's listening. She's asking questions. She's sharing her ideas, maybe even debating among the others that are in the room. There's a phrase that has come to us through the centuries uh, to be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And it comes from this idea that the disciples of a rabbi would sit at the feet of the rabbi, and he would walk, and he would teach, and dust would be stirred up. And... It would fall on them. So metaphorically, it was like the things that he's teaching are falling on them because they're sitting at his feet. That is what Mary is doing. And a Jesus follower 
is neither privileged nor limited by gender. You have to see that in this story. Uh, there's no exclusion of Mary from this space. It's the opposite. Jesus elevates her and says to Martha, yeah, you should have been in here too. And Luke puts it right there in front of us in plain sight that we would miss with our modern eyes, but in the first century, this is radical. There is no barrier nor advantage that is based on gender with our Lord. And you know, we could learn so much from one another this way. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And while they do, I have a couple pictures in my mind of this. One is, um, can't you just see the men having to scooch over a little bit when Mary walked into the room? I can totally see that. And I wonder if that could not be a picture for some of us who are more traditional in our thinking. Maybe we should scooch over a little and allow the women in our lives to lead wholeheartedly and fully and to be in every way our equal. And you know, there's another picture I have in my mind. And that is of joining them in what they're doing. I like, to, I like to have in my own little imagination of this scene that when this happens, when Martha comes in and complains, a bunch of the men and others get up and they go and help Martha. Now, this passage is not explicitly about gender. As I said, it's about following Jesus, all of us. It's about what it means to follow Jesus, whether you're a man or a woman, to sit at his feet and allow him to disciple us. And this story is a reminder of how easy it is to be distracted from that with all the things that are going on in our lives and all the things that we could be fearful of and anxious of Jesus says to Martha, you, this is not the most important thing right now. The most important thing is for you to sit at my feet and learn from me. So it's a reminder to, the, to, to, to Martha, a reset for her, and it's a reminder for us. And on, you know, the third Sunday here at Sundridge, we, we take communion. And do you, do you remember that when Jesus has that Last Supper, and kind of like the first of communion as it comes through the traditions of the church to us today. He says, when you do these things, do them to remember me. So in a way, the breaking of the bread and drinking of the cup is a reminder of what the main thing is, as crazy as the world gets. And I know it's strange. I mean, we've made it even more strange with these little cups. And I know it's like, it's so weird. But like, if you get the picture of it, that it's, it's like, it's a symbol to take us back 
to remember something, to remember the broken body of Jesus and his sacrifice and to stop for a moment at least and remember who's in control of our lives and what is most important. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to invite you, let's do this together as a church to take the bread first. Hopefully you've figured out how to pull that first one off. I always prepare it earlier so that I'm ready and then we'll drink of the cup. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, Keep helping people find and follow Jesus.